And as you uh, are turning to your Bibles, just to let you know, this is uh, kind of a bad habit I have. So this is, uh, and I'm going to try not to do it this morning, but I have, a, I have a bad habit. It's kind of like a nervous habit. And that is, like, I have this spot on my beard. It's actually right where the microphone is. I have this spot on my beard that I often just kind of play with and I kind of pick at my beard. And it's really kind of gross if you think about it. So I'm not trying to, to do this. Yeah, it really is kind of, yeah, M would use the word disgusting and is using the word disgusting. But, like, if we're ever, like, in the car and we're running late, you can, t- like, sometimes I'm running late and, you know, I can text somebody and say, oh, I'll be there in 15 minutes. But, like, sometimes I'm kind of nervous about it, so I'll, I'll, like, start picking at it. Or if the car makes a noise, and I don't know what noise the car is making, like, I'm not a car guy, I kind of just start, like, just start picking at my face a little bit. It's kind of gross, and M doesn't really like it because, you know, it just leaves hair, and it's, it's just kind of a gross habit. Um, but the other thing she doesn't like about it is she's afraid, and I've had this before, where I'll pick it so much, like, it'll just, like, create this bald spot on my face, like, uh, through my beard, and I don't really need more bald spots in my life right now, and it's just sort of this, this bad habit that I have, right? And, and maybe you have something like this, and don't tell me, let's not go around the room and share what it is, yeah, don't, don't share what it is, but maybe you have, like, you, you bite your nails, or you fidget, you know, you just kind of have, like, those, like, those fidget spinners are real big right now, or, or whatever it is, right? But something you just do sort of instinctively when you're nervous or just social settings or just when you get bad news or stress, whatever, you just kind of have this nervous habit. Now, in so many ways, I'll be honest, it's uh, outside of it's just a little TMI, there's nothing really wrong with sort of having this nervous habit. But at least for me, it's not really that I do that that's the problem, but it's not what I instinctively do that is a problem. So, meaning th- there's a problem in what I don't do instinctively. See, so, so often something comes to my life and some new, you know, some car, you know, the car makes a sound or I'm a little worried about something and in my first instinct is stress and worry. And so often it is not prayer. It's not going to the one place that actually brings peace and the one source of hope that I have. We are starting the book of Nehemiah this morning. It's part of our series called Citizen Exiles. We're looking at the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All, all happened in the same time period. They're all about how God was calling them to build this countercultural community within the broader community, and they're called to build this community both for the good of God's people and for the rest of the community around them, and they face many obstacles and sins and shortcomings and oppression, and through it all, God was faithful and called them to endure. And we're looking at this time period and at, the, at these books because we want to learn from them And we learn from them so much of God's faithfulness in their day. And we want to look at that to help us see God's faithfulness to us in our day. To help us persevere on mission as we build community together. And as we turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah is is really, it's a continuation of the book of Ezra. In fact, for large points of church history, it it was considered one book that was later on divided. So this is, in some ways, just Ezra part two. And the, and the story picks up right where, where, where Ezra left off last week. So in Ezra chapter 10, right where the story picks up, it, it, right, where that, where, right where that ends is right where Nehemiah picks up on the scene. So God's people have returned from exile. They've come to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. They begin to get their identity back. And where we just left off in the book of Ezra is Ezra had just led them through this time of corporate repentance. For though, though the people came back out of exile, they also brought back their sin and their sinful patterns with them and and it, and it was this painful but necessary process for them of, of repenting of sinful patterns. And it was painful for the community. And so Nehemiah picks up about 14 years later. And we find out right away that 14 years later that the state of the city 
and the state of God's people are in bad shape. So Nehemiah is called to go back and help restore them, both physically and spiritually. By the time the book ends, we're going to be in about the year 440 B.C., which is the end of the history section of the Old Testament. So through the book, we're going to be reading the, the last events listed in the Old Testament until we get near the birth of Christ. So it's the continued history of God, of, of the return of God's people out of exile and how they both stumble and obey along the way. It's Jerusalem being rebuilt and Jerusalem, be, in a sense, becoming ready to stay, becoming the ready stage for the Messiah to come. And it's very much about the need for him to come because of the state of the people. And right away in the book, we're introduced to Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, he, we're going to be looking at him more throughout the book, but he, he's one of these characters who's just, like if you ever read sort of a Christian book on, on leadership, you know, and they'll take a lot of leadership books, they take characters from the Bible and they sort of talk about life lessons and sort of what did they do that displayed leadership. Like they're always about Moses or Nehemiah. Like Nehemiah is just one of these leaders that sort of, sort of stands out. And, um, and one of the things we learn about his leadership and how he starts off his leadership as he, as he hears of hard news is, he does not respond to hard news and difficult news and inward nervousness or fear, but he instead responds by confidence in God. And he displays his confidence by actively putting his trust in him through prayer. So chapter one, we, we, we look at this prayer of Nehemiah, but we learn not just that he prayed and sort of that's a good example, but, but four aspects of prayer that apply, to our, that, that apply to our lives and our prayers as we live in active dependence on God. So the main point we're going to be looking at out of Nehemiah 1 is the content of transforming prayer. The content of transforming prayer. Or if you're taking notes and you want it to be a little simpler, like what's inside prayer that makes a difference? What's inside prayer that makes a difference? So let's again begin in Nehemiah 1 verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year that I was, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Verse 3, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, so just before we go on to the prayer, just to see where we're at. So again, the timeline, this is about 14 years after Ezra ends. And he, he inquires about what, how are people doing, how are, how are folks in Jerusalem doing, and he hears bad news of the people. And again, the, the, the bad news is both spiritual and physical. That they're physically in bad shape, that they're spiritually in bad shape. And, and notice, just even notice the language that they use, right? As they even talk about the exile. Those who survive the exile. Those who sort of just, not the sort of, what's the state of, the, you know, the sort of the faithful who had returned, but just sort of, who, who even, those who survived, how are they doing? And, and even the, this idea of survival is, I think, this mix of both physical and spiritual in view here. That, you know, those who made it out aren't, aren't doing well that they are in trouble, the wall is down, the gates are destroyed, there has been fire. So there's sort of this physical danger that there, there's disrepair in the city, but even worse, that there is shame, it says in verse 3, as they 
continue to stumble, as they continue the sinful patterns that, that sort of led them into exile, there's just sort of this sense that this is all working. So physically the city's in poor shape, and worse, the people of God are in bad shape. So he hears this news, but then he, this, this terrible news, and he immediately, in, and he responds to hearing this news immediately in prayer. In the, which we read up here. But I love how he hears the news and he does not fret, he doesn't plan. He, here's what he does instead. He prays. And we see this beginning in verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Verse 11, now I was a cupbearer to the king. Okay, so again, the main theme we're going to look at this morning is the content of transforming prayer. And four aspects of prayer that we're going to look at this morning. Four aspects. And the first thing is, first aspect is confession. Confession. So confession is admitting directly to God and often to others what we've done wrong, what we see of our sin. Confession is the first outward step of walking on the road of repentance. And really, what it, the main theme of this prayer was, was repentance through confession. And our prayer, likewise, must be filled with confession. So we see here that he, he wept and he mourned and he fasted. Verse 6, he confessed the sins of the people and says, we, we have sinned. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly. We broke your statutes and your commands, and, or your, your, your commandments, your statutes, your rules. Verse 8, that we were unfaithful. We are unfaithful. And then he makes sure to note, it's not just the people, but, but me and my father's household, we, we, we've all done this. And then verse 7, he notes that he says it's against you, that it's against God. This isn't just a vague, you know, we, we, we're not perfect in, in sort of what we've done. And, you know, I guess we've messed up and made some mistakes that he recognized we have offended a holy God and we have broke his laws. He, he saw very clearly that, that it was their sin, that it was the sin that led to the exile. So he's noting even in this difficult news as he's hearing sort of terrible news of the condition of the people and the condition of the city. He, he's noting, listen, we're not a victim of circumstance here. We're not sort of the victim of these pagan kings who have come against us, but, but our sin has led us to where we are. I just want to take a moment to note that not every circumstance we face and every trial we face is a result of our sin. Listen, not, not every there, there's certainly going to be some trials that we, that we do run across because because of our sin and it is because our sin has led us to that. 
But oftentimes, it's the case that we are, we are walking faithfully, that that's why we are facing opposition and oppression. So this is not a call, this is not an example in Nehemiah 1 to, to, to see sin behind all we face, to sort of see that every time we are walking in something hard or, or, or somebody else on the outside is walking through difficulty, that it must be because sin is behind all or just, just to look for sin behind each corner and to search and search and search because certainly that must be the root reason of what we're, of what we're, sitting, of what we're seeing because I think some people have this temptation of sort of wherever they are, if, the, if they're in a hard season, if they're, if they're facing difficulty, if they're walking through a trial, to just sort of just immediately internalize and say, well, I'm here, and, and it must be my fault. And so we just, we need to be careful that not, not every circumstance and trial and hardship or is this because, well, boy, God's just teaching me this lesson, and I'm just not learning. I didn't learn it through the last trial, so... He continues to send me this trial so that I can, that I can finally learn my lesson or, or, or God must be punishing me for something. And one can very easily just run through every trial they have and just go through their life and just, boy, what sin must I not be repenting of because that's what continues to happen. So just in that sense, this is not a sort of the model for how we are to see every circumstance that we are in or to, or to say this is the, the view in which we are to look through. In fact, many in this room, and, and some of you obviously know well, some of you um. I just know your lives a little bit, but I could say your, your trials and hardships are not a result of your personal sin, but of living in a world-destroying, sinful, present reality. And the road you are on is harder because you are walking the narrow way, because you are honoring God. And for you, you, you just need to see God's pleasure in you and purpose for you and, and nearness to you in the season of trial and difficulty. But when... Sin is the obvious culprit, or much more just more routinely, when we simply just see sin in our lives and we, we become aware of sin, the call is to confess and that our sin is serious and it is against the Lord. And note that just for him, this looked like there was, there was anger at the sin, there was sadness, there was resolve, there was repentance. But even in that, even in this range of emotions and this sort of despair over the sin and this weeping and mourning and this fasting, this wasn't sort of just self-pity. This wasn't just, well, woe is me. Let me just be introspective on all my feelings and all my failings. Let me make my identity how I failed and sort of all my failings. That's sort of who I am. That's Nehemiah, just the big failure in life. And that's sort of, this is it. We're going to talk much more about this, but it wasn't, well, I guess the story's over now because I sinned, the people sinned, this is just where we are right now. This is, sin is real, sin is serious, sin must be dealt with, and because of sin, I, I'm not going to claim any of my own effort, I'm not going to claim any of my own obedience. Listen, the, the solution is not going to be, I resolve to do it different next time, but the only thing I can claim is the mercy of God. I think that's what we can learn from him as we approach God, that we approach him as sinners in need of mercy. We also need to approach him, and we're going to talk more of this in just a moment, as saints who he loves to give mercy to. But, but part of the act of confession is, is, is we're not depending on our ability to be different, but that we, we only plead the mercy of God because we recognize that we, we are sinful and we are weak and, and we are broken and and we are powerless to change our circumstances on our own. And here we, we see him not just sort of generally talking about sin, but he, he confesses specific sins. And this is, again, isn't just a general, I, I guess sin happened, but, but he's trying to be as honest in his confession as he can be. He, he's trying to just, 
he, he's giving sort of this, you know, people broken laws. I've broken the, these laws before. I've broken these rules. And so his confession, our confession, there, there, there's a purpose behind confession. It's not just sort of to, to check the box of, okay, that's what humble people do, right? So I'm supposed to be humble, so I guess I start with confession. That, that's, you know, yep, check that. Or there's this formula to prayer, like, okay, it's step one, step two, and I guess confession step. But, it, but we're going to recognize that confession is to posture our hearts rightly and accurately and to posture our hearts to receive his mercy and his grace. And the, and the more specific our confession is, the more specific we're going to be aware of how his grace is meeting us. And just to, to recognize that, that in my life, I, I need a specific grace to, 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 to take hold in my life as, as a parent, right? I, I don't just need sort of, I, just need, I don't just need general grace for parenting. That's, that's not true. I do need general grace for parenting. I need as much grace as I can get. But, but I really need grace when I'm, when I'm looking to grow that confronts me in the, exact spot that I am weak, right where I am proud, right where I am impatient, right where I am slow to learn. That's where I need grace to meet me. And so the more aware I am of, 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 of my need of mercy, the better I am positioned to, to see it and to receive it. So as his people, we confess, we are called to confess, and as we do confess, we should also be very aware that God is eager to give mercy, which leads us to the second thing we see in this prayer, the second aspect uh, of transforming prayer number the second thing we see is confidence is confidence you know i don't think i'm saying anything insightful to say that politicians right they, they try to project confidence at all times right like part of the skill of running for office is having p people believe that you're this envisioning leader that you, you know sort of we can we can sort of you know put our trust in you right so like just during an election right like, they, they never say, you know, I, if you elect me into office, like, I've got, you know, sort of some priorities and sort of a, a plan that I'd like to enact if you elect me. They just, they, they talk about it. Listen, when you elect me into office, here's, here's the day one what we're going to do. Here's the policies that are going to be put into place and how we're going to sort of transform our community, right? They just, they talk very confidently. Or, you know, I love to hear, like, if you're ever hearing somebody, like a politician interview, and they'll talk about how they're behind in the polls, they'll just start talking about, you know, I know that's what the media's numbers are telling you right now, but here's, here's what I'm seeing. As I'm out, as I'm talking to people in our community, as I'm talking to real people in our community, like, I'm just hearing excitement about our vision and our excitement to change sort of our community. So I don't know what your numbers are saying. I just see, I just see excitement all around me. And this is, you know, the, we're, we're excited about our, you know, about our, our, you know, our winning strategy here, right? They just try to project confidence in what they do because we, we like confidence and we like, we like leaders with confidence. And, but, but there's a big difference between projecting s something, sort of this, almost political, you know, fake it till you make it, and just let's try to look confident even if we know we're way behind. There's a difference between that and having an actual basis for confidence. And here, as Nehemiah prays, he, we see he is confident, but he is not projecting, but he's got every reason to be confident. And he's not confident in his circumstances. He, he sees that his circumstances are the rightful cause of his lament, he is not confident in his ability. That's why he starts with confession and the need for God to be the one to intervene. He's not confident in the people around him. That's why they are where they are. But he is confident in what is he confident in? He is confident in the faithfulness of God 
and the promises of God. That's why he's declaring in verse 9 and 10 that God has a purpose, and his purpose is to dwell with his people. Declares in verse 5 that God is great and awesome. He is the God who keeps covenant, who shows steadfast love, that he's just confident, hey, these are your people, and they are your people because you are the God who has redeemed them, and you are the God of strong power. You are the God who has the strong hand. So he, he starts with confession, but then he moves towards the, the hope that he has, that God is powerful, that God is on his throne, that God is faithful, and that God is for his people. See, even in the midst of confessing sin, his co- he recognized that God's covenant faithfulness means that God is the safest place for sin and for sinners to go, even though God is the God of all purity and holiness. In fact, it's, it's his faithfulness that, that makes Nehemiah and makes us want to draw near, wants us to draw more near to him and to know him and get, to get rid of this sin to, that helps us love him more. And he, so he immediately moves right from sin to, so I, want, I, want, I am drawn by God's faithfulness and he immediately moves there. And then even, I don't know, this probably it caught me and it probably caught you too. Then the, the chapter ends even, right, with Nehemiah just sort of declaring, he sort of wraps up his prayer and he just says, and he was a cupbearer to the king, which we're going to spend more time on this in future chapters, and this theme sort of gets bigger throughout the book. But to, to note this, that the cupbearer was this, was this man of integrity. He had to be trusted, that Nehemiah was a, a trusted man. He, he had access to the king. So even as he's praying for God's faithfulness to sort of be put on display and for God to sort of work in the midst of his people to sort of fulfill what he, was, what, what he had brought his people out of exile to do, wouldn't you know that he, he's just sort of reminded of the fact that God had this Jew who had direct line to this pagan king who as the story unfolds, this pagan king would be much of the means God would use to restore and rebuild his people and their city and that Nehemiah happened to be placed right where this king was. All to say that even as he's declaring his confidence in the character of God and the promises of God, we, we, we see the seeds of how God will be faithful to bring his good purposes to pass. That Nehemiah was already in a position to be used in ways that would display the power of God. Now, Like Nehemiah, we should have every confidence in who God is and his faithfulness and his promises, his care for his people. Now, we might not see, as he was seeing, how he is currently positioning us to see his faithfulness. But we can be quite confident that we will see it because our God is faithful to all of his people, all of their days. And as we repent, we aren't sort of, or as we confess, we aren't just sort of cowering in a corner we are also confidently declaring as nehemiah does that as we walk the road of repentance and faith that our god is faithful and he directs each step and he empowers each act and he is the one who completes the good work he began that he is sovereign over circumstances and history and over our life over our trials and our pains and our joys and all of our prayers and as we come to god we come with absolute confidence because his faithfulness is bigger than our sin and our trials and our weaknesses and our and his faithfulness then invites us and calls us to be used by him so the third thing we see in this prayer is the content of transforming prayer that the third aspect we see in this prayer is commission commission 
See, we also see that Nehemiah has this heart for the mission that they are on, and that's so much what burdens his prayer. He asked for success in verse 11. Now, what, what, is, what is success for? What was the success for that, 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 hit, that God's name would be known, that God's people would, again, what? Dwell with God in relationship with God. This prayer was about the name of the Lord and about the thriving of God's people, that the mission would be accomplished, that, that Nehemiah's role wouldn't be for the name of Nehemiah to be great, but for the name of the Lord. We can be confident that he loves to answer mission prayers, that the Lord loves to posture our hearts by us recognizing that we are on a mission greater than our name. We have a bigger identity than our name and our reputation and our calling. And, and, and this prayer wasn't just sort of for praying for alleviating of hard circumstances. Not that that's wrong, but, but, but he has here the sort of use circumstances to advance the cause of God. Use trials to advance God's purposes. This hardship that the people are in to advance the purposes of God. So often I, I can just pray for circumstances to change because that's what would make my life easier and that's what I would prefer at any given moment. And I can honestly sometimes approach it like it, it's a bonus if God is glorified, but what I'd really like to see is just this circumstance to be changed right around me rather than just recognizing that all of life is meant to be lived on a mission and, and prayer is meant to posture my heart to see it. And he is the God who both transforms not only circumstances but my own heart and to recognize that the, the bigger danger is, is not the trial I face, but the bigger danger is, is wasting it by looking at it as something only to be escaped from as soon as possible, rather than seeing God is glorified as his power is seen, not, only in, not always in helping one avoid the valley, but by being with us as we walk through the valley. And so our prayer should be filled with a concern for the glory and for the purposes of God. Fourth, we see this, so the content of transforming prayer. Fourth thing we see is Christ. Now, Verse 11, Nehemiah, he asks this question, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants. He basically says, grant mercy throughout this prayer, grant mercy to me, to your people. I want to ask a question, why, why could Nehemiah, and why could, we, why could we pray that? So that God would be attentive to the prayer of his servants. Why can we pray that in light of the fact that we are the ones who bring sin and brokenness and the results of living in a sin-stained, broken world? In light of the fact that we have nothing on our own to claim. How, how, can, we, how can we ask that? And how can we not only ask that, but how can we ask that with full confidence of the answer that God will incline his ear towards us? It's because we know what Nehemiah would have only longed to see. How do we know that God will always be faithful to his people? And how do we know that he will always incline his ear to be attentive to our prayers? That as we confess, as we declare our confidence in his character, God will not bring us what we deserve, but will bring us mercy. And even his discipline is an act of restorative love. Because we know that Jesus Christ came and he bore all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our brokenness and all of our sorrow and he took it upon himself. Because we know that God the Father shut his ears from Christ's cry so that he in, could incline his ear towards his people and hear each of their prayers. That this is the God who redeems his people not just out of this earthly life full of trial but to eternal life in him. 
And because God the Father and because God the Son and God the Spirit is faithful to his people, we can be confident as we, as we confess and as we labor and as we pray and as we look around and as we look inward and so often what we see is brokenness and the results of it. Because Jesus Christ came and he lived perfectly and he died and he rose again and he ascended and he now reigns over all things and one day will return to complete all he began. We really can boldly and daily and hourly and moment by moment we can come and we, as we are, we are transformed because we have Christ who not only did all this, but we have Christ who Romans 8 declares is right now interceding on behalf of his people so that we never come on our own. We never come on our merit. We never come on our own works. We never come on really good intentions. But we come always and only through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ transforms everything. And so we can confess and as we confess, we are not confident in us, but we are confident in his faithfulness to us. And as he shows himself faithful, we more and more want to join him on his saving mission. And as we see the mission moving forward, we, we become more and more aware of the love and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. And we want to just be more and more transformed by it and by him. As we are continue to be transformed by him, we, can tra- we continue to come to him. This, this prayer points to what Nehemiah would have only longed to see, that Jesus Christ is the reason that we can be totally certain of God's faithfulness to his people all of their days. He will hear all of their prayers. He will be with them through every trial, through every hardship, through every circumstance. And we can be confident right now in whatever we face today. Jesus Christ is with us. God is with his people because he sees us not through the prism of the sin we bring and the brokenness we have created, but he sees them through the prism of his perfect son. And that is always and only what we have to claim. Let's pray. Father, would you continue to do a work in your people, Lord, where we are a people that that confess, that recognize that we are sinners in need of mercy, that we are those who who bring brokenness and who have brought shame, who have brought, who who have been those who have broken your laws and broken your statutes. But Lord, as we confess these things, as we recognize the reality of what we have brought, we also recognize that you are the God who we can have absolute confidence in because you are the God rich in mercy because of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ didn't look past our shame, didn't look past our guilt, didn't look past our brokenness, but, but took all of our sin and all of our shame, took all of our guilt, and he took it upon himself. And so it really, all of our, what we have brought, all of that has been dealt with at the cross of Calvary. And in rising again, Not only was he risen to new life, but we are risen to new life. So, Lord, we are confident in your promises and in your intentions for your people. So may we be those who are transformed more and more into your likeness as we come to you, as we declare our confidence in you, as we join you on your saving mission. Would we be transformed more and more into your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.